You are listening to Holy Heresy, a podcast that explores the evolution of faith in these challenging times. Whether you have a lot of faith, a little faith, absolutely no faith, or are of another faith, it is our hope that these podcasts will help you find your place in the ongoing conversation that has been evolving forever. This series on banned books is brought to you by First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. In the book Serendipities, Language and Lunacy, Umberto Eco recounts how the 13th century Italian explorer Marco Polo searched for unicorns and stubbornly claimed to have found them. At the time, European culture accepted the existence of these mythical creatures. What he actually discovered, however, were Asian rhinos, animals for which he had no image or language. Marco Polo fell victim to what Echo called background books. These invisible books, Echo writes, are our preconceived notions of the world, derived from our cultural tradition. In a very curious sense, we all travel knowing in advance what we are on the verge of discovering, because past reading has told us what we are supposed to discover. It's vital to recognize the influence these invisible background books have in the age-old battles over banned books, battles reaching new levels of absurdity today. Math books in Florida, anyone? The American Public Library Association reported 330 new challenges to books last fall alone. In what we hope will be an exciting, engaging, and yes, challenging new series for our community during this season of Eastertide, we'll consider all that we lose when we censor and exclude histories and cultures and experiences and ideas that make us uncomfortable or that challenge the myths of our background books. The 1619 Project is a perfect example. Begun in 2019 as long-form journalism in the New York Times to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved peoples in North America, the subsequent podcast and book by Nicole Hannah-Jones challenged the symbolic beginnings of what would become the United States. In 1619, a year before the Mayflower arrived, carrying pilgrims in search of religious freedom, the White Lion ship arrived in Virginia with over 20 enslaved Africans. This latter piece of history, she argues, tells a more complete origin story. Hannah Jones and other scholars then go on to detail every aspect of slavery and its continuing legacy, in which being white or a person of color can affect everything from how you fare in courts and hospitals and schools to the odds that your neighborhood will be bulldozed for a freeway. 1619 contains examples of critical race theory, developed by legal scholars in the 70s and 80s as a framework for legal analysis. The core idea you may know is that race is a social construct, 
that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but it is also something embedded in our legal systems and policies. When 1619 came out, lawmakers introduced bills in the U.S. Senate and at least five state legislatures to strip funds from schools that used its curriculum. More recent criticism claims that teaching books like 1619 is divisive, leading to greater prejudice among students. And yet what experience teaches repeatedly, especially among youth, is that the more we look honestly at our history, the more likely we are to imagine a different future and resolve to create it. The more we are willing to sit with each other in our pain, listening to understand each other's wounds and our ongoing part in them, the more we see our shared humanity, the more empathy stirs within us. Debates about what is appropriate to teach and when is certainly one thing. But the earlier we nurture compassion in diverse experiences, the more a hopeful horizon begins to emerge. Look at my hands and feet, Jesus says. It is I, really. Jesus, in striking vulnerability, leads with his wounds, the wounds of crucifixion. And these words are also encouragement, I think, for his followers to share their own. Behind locked doors, with no small amount of sadness and confusion, shame and fear, Jesus comes to them speaking peace. As their wrongs and doubts and wonders are welcomed without condition or condemnation, they find joy and life renewed. Touch and see me. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as I do, Jesus continues. Can we truly see each other's humanity without seeing and understanding the sum of our experiences? We miss so much when our wounds are belittled, dismissed, or censored for the sake of another's comfort. Our inability to take seriously the hurt we continue to inflict on each other will not lead us to any healing, healing which is sorely needed among all of us, oppressed and oppressor. As 1619 argues, while progress has indeed been made as it relates to representation and racism more broadly, progress is not inevitable without great and consistent intention and can just as easily regress. Think of the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 which led to the greatest number of voter suppression laws and voters removed from rolls since the 1890s, disproportionately affecting people of color. We miss even more still. Often and on purpose, we talk here at First Church of the Imago Dei, the image of God, the reflection of the sacred's irrevocable goodness and love inherent in every human being. Recently, black author Christy Lauren Adams suggested that banning books actually restricts the image of God in others. As a person of faith, she writes, 
I can learn more about God through the eyes of my neighbor. The stories, the experiences, and the testimonies of my neighbor are all legitimate opportunities for me to have an encounter with the Spirit of God in some unique way. I may not understand or be able to relate to some of those experiences, but there is something that I can learn from all of them. Banning books, she continues, is not just dangerous to the fabric of society. It is dangerous to us spiritually, for it limits our ability to learn more about the God who created us when we cut off our exposure to the diverse nature of God through other human beings. God is ensconced within the human experience. Jesus reveals this ensconcing in a profound way that Easter evening with his followers. As they wrestle with the reality of his wounds, they also observe how new life has come from them. However, this story and the wonderful post-Easter stories we'll share over the next six weeks reveal more than one person's experience. Richard Rohr suggests that Jesus' death and life from death reveals a pattern that is true of every life and created thing. Desmond Tutu, sitting in a garden with some church leaders, dreaming of and working toward the end of South African apartheid, reflected this way. As I sat quietly in the garden, I realized the power of God's transformation in our world. The principle of transformation, or resurrection, we might say, is at work when something so unlikely as the brown grass that covers our veld in winter becomes bright green again. Or when the tree with gnarled leafless branches bursts forth with the sap flowing so that the birds sit chirping in the leafy branches. Or when the once dry streams gurgle with swift flowing water when winter gives way to spring and nature seems to experience its own resurrection. So it is in our lives, over and over. Jesus seems to suggest that we might live in a different way with all of our pain and suffering, finding a way to imagine God even in this. God is even at work in this, this pain, this loss, this hopelessness, this illness, this death. New life is coming, for the worst thing is not the last thing. Jesus' invitation is to see that life and love finally overcome. God is remaking the world, and we are invited to join in the creative endeavor. So if we cannot see Jesus in the crucified of our day, I'm afraid we will not see him at all. If we refuse to recognize Jesus among those hungry in body and spirit, begging for relief or begging for justice, then Jesus might as well be a ghost, and our following him remain in unembodied, detached, spiritual enterprise. Do you have anything to eat?
he asks them? I don't think the request is merely to prove that he's really real, but rather to show the way of any who would follow him. Nourish this new life and find peace in the partaking. It's as if Jesus says that as we share God's love with all God's children, there is no hunger that cannot be fed, no wound that cannot be healed, no oppression that cannot be ended, no hatred that cannot be turned to love, no dream that cannot be fulfilled. This is what it means to be Easter people. I'll never forget what one of my divinity school professors said on the very first day of class. In this course, we will not speak of Christianity. Rather, of Christianities, plural. He was poking at my background books already. And I couldn't be more grateful for the many Jesus communities that emerged in the first couple centuries after the empty tomb were diverse. Some of them formed wisdom schools, and some formed supper gatherings that explicitly made sure the hungry in their communities were invited and fed. They formed and embraced chosen families. They defied gender roles and imagined themselves in Christ as beyond gender. They resisted and challenged the brutality of the Roman Empire in unimaginably courageous ways. And they wrote lots. Many of their writings were banned from the New Testament. The infancy gospel of Thomas contains my absolute favorite story. Jesus is five years old, playing with his friend when he zaps him dead just to raise him from the dead. Did we need that story in the New Testament? Probably not. <laughs> Though, I think I would have kept it. <laughs> From one of those Jesus wisdom schools came a piece of writing called The Thunder, Perfect Mind, discovered at Nag Hammadi in 1945. It reads, I am she who exists in all fears and trembling boldness. This week, I imagine the Jesus communities finding great strength in those words of the divine voice as they went about stubbornly insisting that life comes to the dead and seeing to it. As a follower of Jesus, I can't look at 1619 and the realities of our present day rooted in that year and not see hope. The courage and creativity of my spiritual ancestors resides in me and unsettles me when I, far too often, rest so easily in my privilege and enjoy how well the status quo continues to work in my favor. Perhaps that is also our invitation this morning. Or perhaps your invitation today is to breathe in the breath of your ancestors who creatively survived and thrived as you continue to endure racism in ways great and small every day. To hear the one who comes alongside all who suffer and yearn for a new life without fear, saying, Peace, peace be with you. May we all breathe in that peace today. 
then exhaling, go forth to risk knowing one another more and risk being known, to find the strength that comes from sharing our wounds, that they may be understood and honored in love, to challenge what is and work for what could be, to read what the powers tell us cannot be read. Perhaps we'll find some of those readings down at the LA Book Festival today. Imagine if we internalize this old new background book again, or for the first time, that in all our travels, we knew in advance what we were on the verge of discovering because we've come to know the Holy One who brings life from death. Imagine. Amen. If you have appreciated what you have heard, we invite you to join the conversation in person or online each week. We also invite you to make a financial gift to help First Church continue being a community that reminds us how much we are loved by our Creator. To donate, go to fccla.org give. And share this podcast with the people you know that need to hear they are loved exactly as they are.